How do you spot a false teacher? The Bible warns us about those who will come into the church and lead people astray with false messages and lifestyles that don't accord with the gospel of Christ. Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 as he was about to leave Ephesus. He exhorted them to be on the lookout for fierce wolves who would attempt to draw away the disciples with distorted teachings. Jesus himself said that false prophets, whom he also calls wolves in sheep's clothing, would be identified by their fruit. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, you will know them by their fruit. But that's not always easy to discern because we might be inclined to think big numbers indicate good fruit and small numbers indicate bad fruit, but it's not really that simple, is it? Jesus also, in Revelation chapter 2, in a letter to uh, several churches there, rebukes the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira for tolerating false teaching. That is a particular critique that he has of these two congregations. And indeed, the central theme of Galatians, the book we're studying together now, the central theme that sinners are made right with God through faith in Christ and not by works of the law, is in response to twisted teaching that has gained influence in Galatia through the work of false ministers, false teachers who are undermining Paul's ministry and indeed uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in these churches. So this is common. This is clearly a danger that Jesus and his apostles wanted the church to be alerted to. How do we know? How do we know when we've been duped by a false teacher, when we've come under the influence of false ministers. Well, in the paragraph we'll consider today, in the middle of chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul looks back on his own fruitful ministry among the Galatians when he had been there with them and planted these churches and contrasts it with the state of things between him and this congregation now. He looks back at the way things had gone and the fruit of that ministry, and he contrasts that with what's going on now, and, and there's these implications of the kinds of leaders that they've begun to follow. So I'm going to read for you Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20. And the title you see in the bulletin is correct this time. Uh, last week I intended to get from verse 8 all the way through verse 20 and decided late in the game it was way too much to take on for one message, so the title was not correct. It is now. Until Christ is formed in you is our message for today. So let me read for you verses 12 through 20, and then we'll walk through these verses together. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, 
for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The relational context between Paul and these Gentile Christians in Galatia is so rich and clear in these verses. It's a reminder that ministry doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not just somebody shouting true things and letting the chips fall where they may. There's a context of life and relationship and a shared journey between Paul and these Christians in Galatia and certainly between any pastor or church leader and his congregation. And it's helpful for us to, to step back from the kind of rapid-fire argument that he's been making and to just consider this relational context and how these things came to be. And Paul indeed appeals to his relationship with them in this case. He's not just making a truth claim. He's talking about the relationship that he had developed with, with these people. Think back to how we were when we were together and how much God had blessed our time together and what has, what has changed, what is, what is the difference here. Well, here's the main idea that uh, as we're going to walk through these verses today, we're going to see four key differences between true ministers and false ministers. I got a chart for you. Don't get used to this, all right? I'm not big on visual aids, but I thought the way that I ended up breaking this down that this would be helpful for you to see. Um, four key differences between uh, true ministers and false ministers. He's going to contrast himself, of course, as the one who had labored on behalf of the gospel and of Christ as, the, as a true minister of the gospel with these false teachers, these false ministers that have led uh, the churches astray. I want to make a note before we walk through these differences that though there's an emphasis here, of course, on pastors and church leaders, these lessons apply to all of us in the various capacities in which God calls us to minister the gospel to our neighbors, both inside and outside the church. You are all ministers to one another within the body of, of the church and ministers of God's gospel grace to those outside the church as he plants us and places us in context to speak of him and represent his kingdom. So there's an emphasis on pastors, church leaders, but that doesn't mean that pastors and church leaders are the only ones to whom this, these uh, commendations are relevant. Well, here's the first one that I want to point out. True ministers make sacrifices for your sake. So if we're trying to figure out what is the character of a true minister versus the character of a false minister, the first thing that Paul would point us to is that true ministers make sacrifices for your sake. You can see that as it begins in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. I think that refers to Paul giving up for a season when he was among them his own habit, his own pattern of observing Jewish law. So he's taken pains to show observance of the Jewish law, of Mosaic law, is not what saves you. It's not the basis of your standing with God. Nevertheless, Paul himself regards the law as a good thing. And as a Jew, he lives according to these, uh, these rules uh, and these commands. But he is clear to say, you are not required to do this, right? Following the Mosaic law does not make you right with God. But for the sake of his evangelism, when he was among the Gentile audience in Galatia, he gave those things up. He stopped abiding by 
He relates to his Gentile congregation because he, as he says, have become like you are. In other words, living without reference to the law, the, the Mosaic law. And so now when he says, I entreat you to become as I am, I think he's sort of saying, now I want you to give up observance of the Mosaic law like I gave it up for you, right? So on your behalf, I made this sacrifice. I changed my way of living, in a sense, for the benefit of your hearing of the gospel. And now I'm asking you to let the same thing go. Because again, his argument to them is you don't need to follow the Jewish law to be right with God. That's not what, what you, the basis of your righteousness is. So in other words, he's calling to give up Jewish law as a means of obtaining righteousness. And so he makes sacrifices on behalf of the people that he's ministering to. He takes the burden upon himself to change, to adapt, to contextualize, if you want to use the big uh, flash word for in missions these days. He contextualizes his ministry to them so that there's not an unnecessary boundary. This is uh, the way that he speaks uh, and, and ministers throughout uh, his, his uh, time as an apostle. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. He said, he's speaking there of some of the rights that he and his apostolic uh, uh, compatriots would have had that they didn't take advantage of. He said, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then down further in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So it is Paul... It is the minister of the gospel who takes the burden upon himself to remove unnecessary barriers. Instead of, as the false teachers do, demanding that you make sacrifices in order to fit in. That's what these false teachers in Galatia have been doing. The false teachers' insistence on Jewish law-keeping, circumcision, dietary codes, observing feasts and days is the exact reverse of how Paul operated among the Galatians and how true Christians ought to treat unbelievers to whom we're seeking to minister. We don't go into an unbelieving community and demand that they change their culture so that they can fit and look a little bit more like us. That's not true ministry. It's the ministers, it's the true ministers of the gospel who make the changes. It's the true ministers of the gospel who, without affecting the message of the gospel at all, are willing to drop almost anything else to get it out of the way of a clear hearing for the gospel. But these false ministers are doing the exact opposite. They are demanding that they make the sacrifices. You need to be Gentile Christians, need to become more Jewish so that you'll fit in with us. In order to really belong to the community of God's people, you need to take on our rhythms and routines and structures and conscience. I wonder if we inadvertently place unnecessary barriers like this or burdens like this upon people that we're trying to minister to. Tim Keller says, one of the marks of a legalistic works-righteous mindset is that it is inflexible and obsessed with details. 
Such a person wants the converts to dress and act just like us. Pay attention to this obsession with details. And notice a red flag waving whenever someone insists on following Christ in very specific ways. Beware when being careful about your entertainment choices becomes you must not watch a particular show or listen to a particular genre of music. Beware when holding biblical values in the public square becomes you must always vote for members of a certain political party. Beware when stewarding the bodies that God has given us becomes you must not eat certain foods or you must achieve a certain level of physical fitness. These are not bad things, but they go beyond the clear commands of Scripture and they impose a standard of cultural conformity that Christ himself does not demand. It's obsessed with details. The more specific the commands get, the farther away from biblical framework we're wandering. So beware Bible teaching that imposes diets and boycotts and rituals beyond the clear and obvious commands of Scripture. And that's what's going on in Galatia. These false ministers are demanding sacrifices on the part of the congregation in order to fit in. That's not how true ministers operate. A true minister makes the sacrifices himself for the sake of the congregation. The second difference True ministers will enjoy a reciprocal relationship of love and encouragement. There's a mutual benefiting between pastor and congregation, between church leader and people, between minister and audience. And we see this very clearly in, uh, throughout this paragraph as Paul speaks of the way that he lived among the Galatians when he had been with them. Notice some of these expressions uh, of their relationship that they enjoyed. He says in verse 12, you did me no wrong, which may be sort of a, an understatement because he's going to go on to list ways that they had actually done good to him. But he's saying, you know, you had cause, you had reasons to, to to um, react against me, right? To recoil from me, but instead you you welcomed me, you received me, you did me no wrong. He speaks of of a physical condition, an ailment that he had. He says, "Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me or reject me." Indeed, short of not only did they not reject him, they actually received him. And in these, the highest possible terms, you received me as an angel, as Christ Jesus himself, right? There's this hospitality, this warmth, this embrace that the Galatian congregation had had for Paul. And he's remembering this and reminding them of this. We were close, right? You loved me. You took care of me in my distress, in my physical ailment. He says down a few verses later, oh, he says, I attest to you that you would have gouged out your eyes for me if possible. It seems that perhaps this ongoing struggle that Paul had, he spoke of it in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 as a, a thorn in the flesh. And it could be, it was probably some physical ailment and it might have had to do with his eyes. 
So it could be here that when he says that they would have been willing to gouge out their eyes for his sake, he may be referring to a blindness issue or some kind of an eye infection or something that he dealt with kind of uh, uh, routinely. But at any rate, it was this, this physical burden, this ailment that was a trouble to him and a trial to others, right? It made it so that it was difficult for other people to sort of accommodate him. And he's saying, despite all of these difficulties, you welcomed me and you cared for me. And a few verses later where he says, what has become of your blessedness? I think that blessedness refers to the warm, joyful embrace that the people had extended to Paul. We used to have this connection. You were welcoming to me. You were kind to me. You took care of me. What has happened? Things have changed. You no longer regard me in the same way. And I think there's an important word here for us about suffering and how God uses it in our lives. The very context of of their relationship was Paul's hardship and their support of him in it. He says, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And that sounds a little strange, but it probably means that he had plans in his missionary travels to move on, and his physical burden hindered him from doing that. He had to slow down. He had to pause and stay put for a while. And because he found himself there in Galatia, he began preaching the gospel as he did. That's what Paul did. Wherever he was, he would preach the gospel, go into the synagogues, teach the Jews, and then go out and about and make disciples. And so it was because of this ailment that he preached the gospel at first. And I think it's important for us to see that. The whole reason he stuck around in Galatia and preached the gospel was because of this physical burden that he had. Perhaps the very same burden that he called elsewhere a thorn in his flesh that God refused to remove. He said he entreated the Lord three times to remove it, and each time he said, my grace is sufficient for you. God clearly intends to use the suffering in our life in a whole lot of different ways. You will suffer. If you're not suffering now, you probably will soon. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news or a Debbie Downer, but suffering is a regular part of life in a fallen world. And when it comes into your life, do not be surprised by it. Do not regard it as evidence of God's abandonment, but of his grace at work. And I can see two ways in this very text that God gives grace through suffering. The first way is by providing community in the church to come alongside you in support and encouragement. I would contend that God showed Paul his faithfulness, his presence, his blessing in the kindness and hospitality and welcome of the Galatians as they came alongside him and cared for him and gave him what he needed and gave him this context to to heal and, and strengthen. He was indeed being ministered to by God. So in your suffering, perhaps God is looking for an opportunity to minister to you through his church to allow brothers and sisters in the body to come alongside you, to minister to you, to hold you up. And another way we see God at work in Paul's suffering is by providing an opportunity for the gospel that he otherwise wouldn't have had. Be looking for kingdom opportunities that are hidden in your detours and disruptions. 
This wasn't my plan. I was supposed to go over there. I was supposed to move a little faster. Well, you've been providentially hindered. I wonder what God has for you to do here. I wonder who God might have for you to speak to or to minister to. You probably never planned or intended or desired to be in the waiting room at the cancer ward. But what other patient might you extend kindness to? Might you give the comfort of God's grace to? There are all kinds of ways that in our suffering, God provides opportunities for the gospel. So be on the lookout, just as Paul was. He's a great example to us here. Ministering in Galatia and planting churches there was not his plan, but it was definitely God's plan. And he used Paul's suffering to bring it about. So be on the lookout for kingdom opportunities that are hidden in your suffering. So true ministers cultivate a reciprocal relationship of love and encouragement. Not so with the false ministers who exclude you. Their aim is to shut you out. You can see that's what's happening among the Galatians. They were excluding the Gentile converts from meals and fellowship until they followed certain Jewish religious laws, such as circumcision, that Paul talked about earlier. Their primary ministry tactic is exclusion. And it works to a point, doesn't it? When the sort of in-crowd puts a barrier, says, oh, no, 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 you, you can't come in here. This is not for you. It, you'd think maybe the person on the outside would be repelled by that. Well, great, I'm going somewhere else. But sometimes it has the opposite effect. Well, what do I got to do to get in? Right? How do I get in your club? What do I got to do? Oh, I got to observe some laws? Okay, cool, I, I could do that, right? So that's their whole strategy, is to exclude them, to shut them out, to manipulate them into their game. False ministers seek to exclude. Beware the ministers who are never really accessible to you. You can never do enough to get on their good side. There's a definite in-crowd with these guys, and you can never seem to get in it. They make you feel like you're not good enough, or cool enough, or young enough, or educated enough, or whatever enough to really belong. If that is the sense that you get from those who are teaching you and leading you, run. These are not true ministers of the gospel. Because if you are in Christ, you belong. Period. There's no other bar that you have to clear. There's no other credentials that you have to earn. You belong to God and his people through faith in Christ. It is that simple. No more, no less than the coolest or the uncoolest person in the room. You belong to the people of God. True ministers tell you the truth perhaps is the most fundamental aspect and thus the best gauge of a true minister. He tells you the truth. God's also given us his revelation in the word to be able to gauge whether what someone says is true. Don't take everything you hear at face value. Read the scriptures. Search his word to see whether these things are so as Luke said of the, the Bereans in the book of Acts. Ephesians 4.15, Paul said, Speaking the truth in love, 
we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So that's the character of Christian ministry. It's truth-telling. It's not lying about the gospel. It's giving you the fullness of God's revelation as clearly and plainly as we possibly can. Not twisting it, manipulating it to build barriers that are unnecessary, but by the open proclamation of the truth. The warmth and joy of Paul's relationship with the Galatianships has turned, it seems, for no other reason than that they have begun to believe lies about the gospel. In verse 16, he says, Have I then, right after, after listing all these things that you have done, you received me as an angel, just as Christ Jesus, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16, he says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's the way that the Galatians are now relating to Paul and thinking of Paul. Paul is our enemy. He's, he's against us. And Paul says, all I'm doing is telling you the truth about the gospel. The truth about what is and isn't required of you in order to be acceptable to God. And it seems that the false teachers had, had convinced the Galatians that Paul was not telling them the whole story. Well, yeah, Paul said that you had to have faith in Christ, but he's leaving out the whole part about how you also have to obey the law. And so now the Galatians are going, ah, Paul's not really for us. He's not telling us the whole truth. Paul says, I've only spoken the truth to you, and it's as though now I've become your enemy. Which implies the obvious counterpoint to the true minister's truth-telling, namely, false ministers tell you lies about the gospel. And I should add here as a little disclaimer, I don't think that false teachers always think they're telling you lies. It'd be real easy if you could just like take a, have a, a, a preacher take a lie detector test. Do you think you're telling me the truth? You think you're telling me the truth? Okay, then you must be fine. I think many false teachers are self-deceived. I think they probably believe they're doing you good. They probably believe they're doing God's will when in fact what they're telling you is the opposite of the truth. It distorts the gospel in some way. So it, it would be easy if we could just put these, these categories up of honest and dishonest. It's not always that simple. Because sometimes the people who are telling you lies about the truth actually think they're doing you good and, and telling you the truth. So we have to be much more careful than that. But false ministers, whether they know it or they are themselves deceived, tell you lies about the gospel. The Galatian false teachers lied about the gospel by elevating and distorting the role of the law in the lives of believers and insisting that a Gentile Christian did not truly belong to God's family until he conformed to their outward display of religion. That's a lie. That's not the truth. And by doing this, they obviously called into question Paul's message and his credibility as a messenger. And so it seems the Galatian Christians have become now suspicious of Paul himself because of the influence of these false teachers. And now they regard Paul as their enemy instead of their friend. Paul says it's good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. And I think that not only when I'm present with you has the tone or the, the sense of you're one way with me in person, but when I go away, you're different. 
Like when I was with you, we were friends. And now that I've gone away, you regard me as an enemy. So it's good to be made much of for a good purpose. In other words, to be commended for growth and faithfulness and, and, and kindness and, and the like. But not only when I'm with you, that should be true whether I'm there or not. But it seems that the Galatians are, are fickle. Their affections and respect for Paul have turned to distrust and disdain in his absence. Why? Why has their trust turned to disdain? Because he won't bend his message to suit their preferences. He insists on telling them the truth. It is that simple. True ministers tell you the truth about the gospel, and they are not willing to twist or bend the message of the word of God in order to make you feel a little bit better, in order to be more popular with you. Matthew Henry, the Puritan pastor, commented on this verse, ministers may sometimes create enemies to themselves by the faithful discharge of their duty. Yet, ministers must not forbear speaking the truth. To forbear meaning to, to skip over it for fear of offending others and drawing their displeasure upon them. So it is true that sometimes telling the truth will earn you an enemy. Because sometimes people don't like to hear the truth. Sometimes the truth stings. Sometimes what a brother or sister has to say will be painful. Sometimes it will be a blow to your pride, and you'll be tempted either toward denial or disdain in response. Either, no, that's not true. I, I don't think you're right about that. Or... You could say what you want. I don't even care about you, right? We're, we're tempted toward denial or disdain. And yet it may be that that sting is exactly what your heart needs. At times, the barbed point of truth, while painful, is how the Lord ministers to us. Not all the time. Truth shouldn't always hurt. Truth shouldn't always be obnoxious. There's a way that we can miss represent and mischaracterize a ministry by being always belligerent and on the warpath about things. I'm just telling you the truth, telling you like it is. Well, sometimes telling it like it is can come with a gentler tone. But truth, even when it hurts, is still what God uses to minister to his people and to build them up. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So you might think, the guy on the left, man, what he says hurts. The dude on the right, psh, he's like, come on. Sin? Who cares about sin? That doesn't matter. Live it up. I, I like what he's saying better. Sounds, feels more like a kiss. That, that's something that you welcome. But it's false. It's doing you harm. We ought to prefer the wounds of a friend to the kisses of an enemy. So while we must not aim to be unnecessarily offensive or obnoxious in our stand for truth, nevertheless, we must take courage from the Lord and stake our lives upon the truth of God's word, the exclusivity of the gospel, the will of God expressed in scripture. Friends, it is impossible to love someone while we're contradicting the truth. And while we may be regarded as enemies for speaking the truth, we must insist upon this from our pastors and leaders, and indeed from every Christ follower, 
Speak the truth in love. This is how God grows his people. The final one. A true minister has a personal concern for your spiritual good. He has a personal concern for your spiritual good. In these later verses of of this paragraph, we really get a window into the emotional life of a shepherd. If you've ever wondered, what keeps a pastor up at night? What are the kinds of things that cause a pastor anxiety and concern? It's not always, is there going to be enough money and things like that. Really, it ought to be things along these lines. Look at what Paul says in verse 18 or 19. By little children, he calls them, such a term of warmth and endearment, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's what Paul cares about. That's why he's so worked up in this letter. It's not because the Galatians aren't doing things his way. It's not because he has this sort of sting of pride that they've regarded him as an enemy. What? Come on, that's not, that's not right. It's because he is burdened for their spiritual growth. He is burdened for Christ to be formed in them, which is such an interesting and vivid way to depict the maturing of a Christian. The whole point of the Christian life is that bit by bit over the course of a life, we are becoming a little bit more like Christ. The whole good, you know, the Romans 8, 28, God uh, works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know what the good it's talking about there? If you read the next verse is so that they might be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That's what God is after. It's not necessarily your comfort or your ease, or your happiness, sort of circumstantially. The good is that you would be conformed to Christ. And so what Paul is laboring for among the Galatians is to see Christ formed in them, the life of Christ taking shape within these followers of Jesus. And that is the true, deep, driving concern of true ministers and indeed of true believers within the church, what you should desire for your brother or sister more than anything else is that they grow in Christ-likeness, is that they grow to maturity in Christ. You see by this phrase two things. Number one, the deep affection that a minister feels for his people. There is this relational context of warmth and love and acceptance and shared life that God in his kindness and his wisdom has ordained this is how churches work. This is how pastors and congregations should live together and grow one another. There's this deep affection. My little children for whom I am in anguish of childbirth. Childbirth doesn't feel that great from what I've heard. And Paul is comparing the inner turmoil that he has to childbirth. And that turmoil is this concern for the spiritual good of the Galatians. This is consistent throughout Paul's ministry. You can see in Philippians chapter 2, this is the famous passage where it speaks of the mind of Christ who counted equality with God, not something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and all this, right? What he says right before that is, complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
And then he describes that mind as the mind of Christ that caused him to humble himself to the point of death on a cross. Complete my joy. Why would Paul be joyful about their having the same mind? Because what he's interested in is their growth in Christ, their maturity in Christ. The Apostle John says in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, not physical, biological children, but spiritual children, those whom he has taught and trained, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is the heart of a true minister. What he's interested in is your spiritual well-being, is your maturing in Christ. Now contrast that with the false minister who manipulates you for his own selfish end. A congregation of a church is just a means to some other end that the minister is after. The false teachers in Galatia, wielding such influence over them, have nefarious, self-serving motives. He says uh, in verse 18, is that where it is? Nope, that's not where it is. Oh, verse 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. I think having the sense of they flatter you, they sort of talk you up, they butter you up but not for a good purpose. In other words, they don't have your own interests in mind. They want to shut you out. Why? So that you may make much of them. That sense of exclusion, that you don't quite belong until you do certain things or cross certain T's or dot certain I's, that has the ultimate goal of elevating themselves in the eyes of the people. Don't you wish you could be in this club? Don't you wish you were just a little bit more like me? That's the sense that you get from these false ministers. They're manipulating the Galatians for their own good. And a false minister is not interested in your spiritual good. He's interested in the puffing up of his own ego. And he'll do whatever he must in order to attain that. Matthew Henry again says, It is the, it is the usual way of seducers to insinuate themselves into people's affections and by that means to draw them into their opinions. If I can make you like me, then I can probably make you believe just about anything I say. And I can start to subtly twist and turn and distort the truth and bring you along with me. That is what false teachers do. Beware the teachers and leaders who seem desperate for approval and admiration. They don't so much love people as use them for their personal advancement. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, their, their MO is at your expense for their benefit. I shut you out so that you'll make much of me. You take the expense, I get the benefit. And friends, this is the exact opposite of how God has always intended his shepherds and his leaders to care for his people. In the famous passage in Ezekiel, chapter 34, Yahweh is chastising the religious leaders of Israel, his people, for leading them astray and for not taking care of them and not looking to their spiritual good. He says in Ezekiel 34, verse 2, Ah, oh, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. 
That's about as strong an indictment as you can get as a shepherd. You're not feeding the sheep. You're feeding yourself at their expense. But true shepherds, real ministers, operate from the exact opposite playbook. At my expense, for your benefit. We take the burden. We make the sacrifice. That's the the heart, the mindset of a true minister, of true Christian teachers and leaders. My expense for your benefit. Looking one more time in Ephesians chapter 4, this time verses 11 to 13, Paul says, And he gave, as is Christ giving gifts to his church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what real ministers are after. Conformity to Christ. Maturity in Christ. The body of Christ growing together and building itself up in love. This is what real ministers are after. They're not manipulating you for their own selfish ends. So Paul here makes this appeal to the Galatians, not just in terms of an argument at this point, but in terms of this sort of personal, relational appeal to them. Consider what things were like when we were together. And consider the character that I had as a minister of the gospel for your good. And contrast that with these false teachers that you're now following. And how they're actually puffing themselves up. Don't be fooled. Don't be duped. And so we have here four marks of a true faithful minister. He makes sacrifices for your sake. He cultivates a reciprocal relationship of love and encouragement. He tells you the truth. He has a personal concern for your spiritual good. This is the kind of leader and shepherd that you should follow. And so we have these four marks of a true faithful minister. And the final thing I want to point out to you is simply this. These marks of faithful ministry are echoes of the life and heart of Jesus Christ who sacrificed his glory in heaven and eventually his very life for the sake of sinners who are far from God who invites us into a relationship of love and care where he delights in us as his people and allows us to partake of himself in joy who speaks the truth to us and by that truth has set us free and whose desire for our spiritual good led him to embrace our curse, our forsakenness at his expense for our benefit that we might have new and lasting life in him. This is the shepherd that we follow. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your kindness to us we thank you for the faithful shepherd heart of Jesus. And we thank you for the gift that you have given to your church, the gift of pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. We pray that you would strengthen the pastors in this church to lead and love and serve well 
as you would call us and have us. We pray that you would cultivate that warm and tender reciprocal relationship among our congregation and our leaders that we read about in this passage. We pray that for everyone in this room, Lord, that we would, in the various capacities and opportunities we have to bless others, that we would seek their spiritual good. That there would be an intentional pursuit of the spiritual maturity and growth of one another across our church body. And that we would speak the truth in love to one another. Father, if there's anyone in the room this morning who has not trusted in you, who has not found in Jesus this shepherd, we pray that you would draw hearts to you even now. That they might repent of their sins and trust in Christ and his finished work for them. That they might come to know his good and loving heart for them. And Father, equip us to bear the good news of the gospel to all the places where you have placed us throughout the week, throughout our years, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.